Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today is a short, live conversation with Mr. Michael Carter, the major domo of Jabba the Hutt, Bib Fortuna. We spoke in person at Madness Comics in Plano, Texas, so there is some background noise, but the incredible stories he tells from the set of Jabba's Palace are definitely worth powering through. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 30, Michael Carter. Um, before we get into Star Wars, I'd love to talk to you about how you first got into acting and what kind of inspired you, whether it was the movies or the work itself. Well, I came from a very small town in Scotland. There wasn't a theater there. My father was a member of a film club, and he used to take me to see films. I mean, they're all a bit too grown up for me. But also, he was a church organist, and he used to do um, the uh, the church pantomime for kids, the Sunday school pantomime, which is kind of very British thing. America, I don't think has any equivalent. And that's how it started, really. And I sort of... Um, I really didn't know what to do when I left school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I auditioned for the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. And I thought, well, if I get in, uh, that'll be a problem. But if I don't get in, then I'll go and do something else. I'll do a proper grown-up job or go to university or something. But I got in. And so that was it. The decision was kind of made for me by the fact that I did one audition. And I got in. And uh, so I went. And, and that was how it started. I really didn't know much about anything when I went there. I had to learn it once I was there. But it was a great ground to learn stuff. Well, before we get into Return of the Jedi, of course, I, I mentioned I wanted to talk a little bit about American Werewolf in London. Yeah. Because you were part of probably the most iconic scene, in my opinion, besides the transformation in in the movie. What was that like, especially working with Landis? And Oh, John Landis was great fun. He was really sparky and he was full of energy. And in between takes, during kind of long gaps when you have setups, he would just kind of amuse us the whole time. We'd have quizzes. We'd ask him any question about movies. You know, he was like an encyclopedia of Hollywood. Like we'd say... Who won the 1938 Oscar for uh, Best Dress Design? And he'd know. Yeah. And, and he was hilarious. When I filmed that underground sequence, the subway sequence, there was a, there was a flu going around Britain at that time. It was like the red flu or the Chinese flu or something, whatever uh-huh. it was. It was one of those weird flus that killed people. Yeah. And I got it. And I lost like a stone and a half in oh, wow. a, well, about 30 pounds in a week. Ten. I'm very thin in the film, as you probably see. Um, because I just lost weight. I went to see my doctor. He said, you've got the flu that's going around. And I said, well, I've, I've got to work next week. I've got to work next week. I'll be fit for work, will you? And all the doctor said to me was, well, it's done for three of my patients already. It's up to you. If you want to go and kill yourself, go ahead. So I went to, to shoot that subway scene. And, of course, everything went wrong. It was deep in the bowels of the earth. It was a subway station below the real subway station. It was decked out to look like the one. Yeah, there was no air. It was an early Steadicam uh, shoot, and they couldn't get the focus, the electronic focus, the, the remote focus to, to work. Uh-huh. So we were doing 25 takes. There was no air. I was ill. I was running. The Steadicam guy almost had a heart attack. And this went on all night, yeah. all night. But we got it in the end, yeah. and we survived it. And uh, it was a hard night's work. <laughs> Wow, that's crazy. Well, I guess moving into Return of the Jedi, how did you first get involved with that production? Well, I think it was, there were two reasons. One, I had done uh, American Werewolf, and they had plastered me with all this. Uh, I mean, it was only kind of uh, around the throat, really. It was all this prosthetic stuff, and I was okay with it. Right. But the casting director had seen me at a big show in the West End. It was in the West End Theatre, and uh, they wanted somebody tall that could move quite well. And the character I played was a 19th century. It was a melodrama. 
he was a villain who becomes the good guy and I kind of I must have moved around the stage in a particular way yeah. people used to say to me you were you've been a boxer haven't you and I said no I said well you move like a boxer on stage I'm completely unaware of it I was just playing the role and I think that's what it was it was somebody who was tall slim and could move and Richard Markham just offered me the job on the spot and initially I said no and he kind of persuaded me to do it because I had no idea what it was and I had a lot of other offers going on at the time. And, uh, but eventually I said, yeah, I'll do it, okay. <laughs> and I'm glad I did. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the prosthetics. You mentioned kind of the makeup. That was an intensive process, at least in the beginning. Well, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. I mean, I, was, I did three months pre-production going up, having sort of my head dipped in plaster and my hands and eyes and stuff. And then when we first got it on, it took eight and a half hours. And... Uh, Nick Dudman got it down to about an hour on the last day of filming. But probably today, they would do something completely different. Like I'd wear, I'd wear a ski mask with electronic tabs on it, and that would be it. Yeah. But at least, I, you know, I, at least I had, although I sat in the, the chair for eight, eight hours, six hours, or whatever it was, at the end of it, I could look in the mirror and I could see what Bib would look like. So it was like doing a mask performance. So I just followed the mask. It's rather slightly a feat, very strange, weird... Uh, creature, uh, so that that was uh, what she wouldn't be able to do. Of course, you would just have no idea what it looked like. Just like that, the working with the puppet, with the Java puppet, I'm yeah. sure was also very helpful with with the actual acting. What was that even like? Since that was so involved. Well, it was kind of odd in a way because I mean, you're an actor, you know how to do it. You're just a professional actor, you know how to do it. And you had this Jabba the Hutt, this massive thing on stage beside me, uh, operated by seven different people. And so you can kind of get into, they did it so well, you could just get into the whole thing and right. you believe it. You know, it was an actor, you believe that you're talking to a living creature. But the only problem we had on the filming days was that the voice was provided by a young sort of 16-year-old stage manager, female stage manager. So you get this massive thing throwing me all over the place and then you suddenly get this voice saying, it's an old Jedi mind trick. <laughs> it's a really kind of feeble voice. Yeah. And then in between shots, when there was a break... They would all get out. Yeah. And this great job of this creature would just deflate like a balloon. It would just go... And it would just be a heap of rubber on the floor. And that would be like that until they came back from the tea break, the coffee break. And they'd all get in and kind of reanimate the whole thing. We'd be away again. So that was just... That was that. That's so funny. Were there any other memories that you have on the set? Anything that... Uh, well, I kept bumping into things. I couldn't see because the contact lenses that they gave me, uh, I couldn't see through them. And, and they bought a hole in the middle. So a tunnel vision, I really couldn't see. And I was always walking into people and falling over and knocking into things. And I remember one occasion, I used to find that in between shots, in between takes, there was no point in going back to the dressing room. It was too difficult for me to get back and to sit down and to get back up again. So I used to just stand. And I'd have one hand against a piece of the set and I'd stand yeah. and just relax. And I'd kind of do a very deep relaxation exercise. I'd just stand there, actually still. And I think what happened was after a while, people started treating me as a piece of the set mm -hmm. more than anything. And on one occasion, I heard somebody saying, can you move him over there? Can you move him? And a, stage, a couple of stage crew guys came up and actually tried to lift me and move me. And I said, it's okay, I'll walk. <laughs> so, so, sorry, mate. Sorry. <laughs> you mentioned Richard Marquand briefly, especially starting. What was he like on set and what was kind of George's involvement as well in the day-to-day -day at least? Richard was great. I mean, um, he was pretty experienced. He's a very good director for actors. Very sympathetic. And, it, you know, just very nice. He had a very kind of, you know, there's just a nice quality to him. You know, there's some directors that make you feel tense. 
And if they make you feel tense, they think they're getting something better out of you, but they're not, actually. Best hygiene comes out of being relaxed and feeling easy, and Richard was very good at that. And um, George would be hovering around, coming in every now and again. He was actually shooting second unit next mm-hmm. door. He was shooting all the Ewok stuff. But he'd come in every now and again, and he'd wander around the place and whisper away to people and that sort of stuff. And right. uh, He seemed to get very tired quite quickly. I remember one afternoon, I was... I was exhausted. It was kind of near the end of my filming after about five weeks. And we were standing in the kind of the corridor bit and I was just kind of leaning down, really exhausted. And he was on the floor. He was really tired as well. And he looked at me and I looked at him. And, and you know, it was kind of one of those moments where you felt you had to make some kind of conversation. So the only thing he could think of saying was, do you play this kind of part often? <laughs> and the only thing I could think of saying was, no. <laughs> that was it. Oh, in Jabba's palace, there are a lot of creatures just like that, right? A lot of very interesting creatures. What was it like working with the other performers and the other actors there? Was it all kind of like a shared camaraderie? or? Yeah, it was. I mean, everybody, you know, you, 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 we all got on. It was a great atmosphere. Right. David Tomlin, who was the first assistant who ran the set, ran it really well, made sure everybody was okay. And everybody, of course, because the, the, the puppet guys were very often under the stage, every time a shot was finished, they kind of had to come up for air. Right. And the uh, Gamoran guards were constantly having people trying to cool them off, shoving uh, little fans in their mouths. Yeah. And a couple of guys fainted. It wasn't very pleasant for them because they couldn't just take their heads off. So there was a lot of concern about the, uh, you know, all, all the characters on set. I mean, it was a very bizarre sort of thing in a way. It was a bit right. like being a big kid. You put on a funny costume and you got paid for it. And you took it seriously. You did it seriously. But... But it had a sort of um, party atmosphere to it, in a way. You don't always get in a film set. Um, because everybody just looks so weird, you know. <laughs> it's really weird. And I had a huge dressing room, and we had... Um, I had an optician called Richard Glass, great name for an optician. And uh, Nick Dudman, who was the makeup guy, we were in there with two coffee machines. So a lot of people used to drift in and out to get coffee. Mark Hamill was often in. But a lot of the creatures would come in too. It was a big dressing room. There was room for them. And very often my dressing room was full of the weirdest looking creatures you'd ever seen. You know, it, was, it was very, very bizarre. Well, I guess after Return of the Jedi comes out, obviously it's had a very lasting effect on just your life. And especially coming to these and, and meeting fans and kind of going to the celebrations and the conventions. What has that been like in seeing this character kind of take hold on multiple generations? Well, it's been very strange. I mean, I still... I've got no ready answer <laughs> for it. I remember an actor being asked at a convention in Devon in England, um, why do you think Star Wars survives all the generations? What do you think it is about it that keeps on appealing to people? And he came up with a very good answer, I think. He said, well, I don't really know, but he said, I think it's possible because they deal in, the films deal in archetypes, good and evil, and human beings respond to archetypes, which is perfectly true. And maybe that's it. Plus the fact that it's... It's certainly got a great appeal for kids. I mean, my seven-year-old grandson is now into it. Right. Took him a couple of years or so. We didn't feed him it at all, but he just kind of got into it. Right. And I find that's very strange. You know, he, he picked it up himself. It wasn't anything to do with me. Initially, Jeremy Bullock spoke to me, because I knew Jeremy, in the 90s and said, why do you come to America and do one of these conventions? And I said, what are they? Yeah. And he told me, and I said, oh, get out of here. <laughs> he said, no. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And yeah. for two or three years, I didn't do it. And then he called me again. He said, come on, come over and do one. So I think the first place I went to was Denver. 
And I remember um, sitting down at a table like this and a queue waiting for autographs. I thought, blimey. <laughs> and it was just Star Wars people. I mean, it was, a, it was a, you know, there's lots of memorabilia being sold for different film stuff and autographs. But we were the only kind of sci-fi types. Right. And uh, the first two guys to ask me for an autograph said, say something from the movie. And I said, I can't remember anything. So they recited my entire part to me. And I actually said, wait a minute, give me that. And I took it all down, a piece of paper. <laughs> so I had something to write. And I just signed autographs. I couldn't yeah. believe it. And really, it's kind of gone on from there. And it's yeah. still going on. And I get six-year-old kids coming up to me. It's extraordinary. I, I think what's also great, especially about Bib, is yes, you're under makeup. But like, yeah. your face is there. A lot of times, it's a Stormtrooper signing an autograph or even Boba Fett, right? And it's Yeah. But you, you are a very visceral part of, of the movie. Yeah, well, people recognize me, even with the makeup on. I remember when Dermot Crowley, he played one of the admirals, came on set one day to meet Richard. He saw me 20 yards away. I, I had the makeup on. I sort of raised my hand to say hello to him. But I thought, well, he won't recognize me. I've got the makeup on. I've got the red right. contacts. He's talking to Richard Mark, and at the end of it, he waved me and said, Hi, Mike. <laughs> he just recognized me. He said, yeah. my face showed through the makeup. Did you recognize yeah. him with his fake beard on? Or? Uh, yeah, yeah, I knew Dermot. <laughs> I've seen Dermot in many different guises, many different hairstyles. Many, not that he's got much hair left, yeah. and many different uh, beards. That's so funny. Well, uh, Mr. Carter, thank you so much for, for taking the time. That was, that was so great. I really great. appreciate it. All the best. Thanks again to Mr. Carter for taking the time during his trip to Texas to talk a little bit more about working on Return of the Jedi. And a very special thanks, as always, to Zach from Galactic Productions for setting the interview up and making sure we got a chance to speak to him. I'm putting a link to upcoming appearances in the show notes. Also in our show notes is the link for our new merch store, which currently has swag to rep at Celebration and Beyond. Next week's episode is a really great conversation with Anthony Forrest. So until then, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.